Welcome to the premiere of Season 4 of Now I've Heard Everything, vintage interviews from the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s with some of the world's most fascinating personalities. The more I thought about all the possibilities of the book titles, I felt that Trust Your Heart made the most sense. It seems to me it's the one thing that's really governed my life, led me to do things that I wanted to do. Singer, songwriter Judy Collins, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. You know, songs recorded by Judy Collins have become some of America's most enduring favorites. It's cause illusions I recall, I really don't know clouds at all. Where are the clouds? Send about a year later and then a number one song shortly after that Judy Collins soon became a fixture in American music particularly the folk music genre although with an upbringing that included everything from classical music to country to pop to folk Collins resisted labels in fact she learned to trust her heart which is why she called her 1987 album and book trust your heart 1987, that's when I met her for the first time, first of several interviews I had with Judy Collins over the years. And yes, she is every bit as nice and sweet as you'd expect her to be, you'd want her to be. So here now from 1987, Judy Collins. We thought a lot about the title, and I decided to call it Trust Your Heart. I've used the title for the title of my recent album, and it's a title of a song that I wrote which is also on that album. And the more I thought about all the possibilities of the book titles, I felt that Trust Your Heart made the most sense. It seems to me it's the one thing that's really governed my life, led me to do things that I wanted to do. And no matter what is is the voice that I follow. You've had a very fulfilling life, have you not? I have indeed. I've done a lot of the things that I wanted to through my life, sung many of the most wonderful songs written by other singers and other writers, and my own writing has been very fulfilling. And I still have a lot of things to do. I'd like to do a lot more writing. It's taken me a long time to get the courage to write this book. Well, as I was telling you before the tape, and I will now tell you on the record, on the tape, your writing is magnificent. I wish you'd been writing a long, long time ago. Thank you. Well, it's something I'll be doing a great deal more of. I will. I couldn't help but think back as I was reading your book that over the summer I had uh, Beverly Sills in here. Bubbles. Uh, Bubbles in here about her book and how she was telling me that from the earliest of her childhood, her mother played classical music and classical opera and how she was inspired to become not just an opera singer but an opera star. Mm-hmm. Now, you had the early classical upbringing, and you didn't become a classical music star. No, I was wondering about that myself. I was never um, drawn to singing arias, and I sang in many opera choruses when I was training 
to play the piano when I was becoming a pianist. I sang in Pagliacci and Eugene Onegin, and I was thrilled to sing in the choirs at church and the choruses at church. I particularly liked the music that was sung in my church, things like lovely appear over the mountains, the feet of them that pray and bring good news of peace, things like that that always thrilled me. Opera arias didn't catch my fancy for some reason. Perhaps it was because of my father's way of making music. He was a fine singer, and he sang all the popular songs of the day. He sang Rogers and Hart, and he also sang Kathleen Mavornine and Galway Bay, which who, know, who knew that those were folk songs, or anything near folk songs. But I wasn't enticed entirely to become a singer until I heard folk music at 15. You've been called a folk singer, and you say in your book that you're not quite sure whether that fits or not, if I'm, if I'm not misquoting you. I sometimes even see your records and your tapes in the, in the record stores in the female vocalist bin along Which with... Which is really where it belongs. Along yes. with the Captain and Tennille and yeah. Patty Page. Yeah. And no, I it just, belongs uh, there. I would say, only because it crosses so many lines. But being called a folk singer, as I am quite often, is like in England, the equivalent of being given the OBE. I think it's an honorable mantle. And although it may not always hold as close to the facts, it gives an indication of what the heart of the matter is about. And I think that it has to do with music of the heart and stories that are more part of visceral life of people, whether they're from the theater, as is uh, Send in the Clowns, a Stephen Sondheim composition, or Kurt Weill, Bert Brecht, songs like Pirate Jenny. I've always done a quite a wide range of material, which sometimes is, is forced into the category of folk music because it, it's forced rather than because it belonged in the first place. It's an interesting puzzle has in part to do with with becoming famous during the time when when the focus on the 60s material and singers and issues of the time was so high and so um, motivating for people. Does it take something on the order of a Vietnam War to inspire that kind of... That kind of music? I mean... Uh, that's an interesting question. You have to go back if you look at sociologically, musicologically, you have to go back to the 50s and to Rock Around the Clock and Patti Page and uh, Dorothy Collins and the Hit Parade and see what the musical threads were that were occurring and what, what was happening as people began to come out of the fear of the 50s. Um, some of the people that were singing and making music in the last late 50s were not particularly political in their music making, but had come out of that fabric of folk music. And I'm thinking about people like Belafonte, who had rather a big record with De Misa Deo, and the Kingston Trio, whose popularity began to come into the fore with... Um, with Wailing songs and work songs. We come on the sloop, John D., my granddaddy and me. 
Also, an odd thing happened then, which is er, a little bit earlier, which is how I happened to find folk music, is that Joe Stafford, of all people, made a folk music record in about 55, which is what I heard. I didn't hear Woody Guthrie first. I didn't hear Pete Seeger. I heard Joe Stafford, which accounts <laughs> probably for my rather eclectic musical uh, choices. Um, so before the war was a primary issue in the middle of the 60s, and the, as it became more than a police action and a military advisorship, there was already a lot of activity, and I always thought it had to do with contrast of the lyrics, that people wanted desperately to hear something with more pith, more meaning. They wanted stories. They wanted portraits. They wanted um, discussions, poetic descriptions, the way they were feeling about things that went a little beyond some of the, uh, you know, earth angel, earth angel. <laughs> So not that that doesn't have its own uh, particular time and place. I would say it's a sort of a complicated musical period and that I was part of it and added a dimension to it and was probably influenced by it. After this short break, Judy Collins speculates on what she would have been if she hadn't been a singer-songwriter. Now back to my 1987 conversation with Judy Collins. You said something in your book that, that I was surprised to read. And if, again, if I'm not misquoting you, you said you don't miss the 60s. Oh, no. Good Lord. No, no, I, I don't miss the 60s. Well, often when we're going through a time of trauma, we're aware of basically getting through it and happy to be doing so. Do you not miss the 60s the way men who perhaps were buddies during World War II don't really miss World War II? Exactly. But they, but they like the camaraderie that it... There was a great deal of camaraderie. There was a great sense of optimism. But I have that sense of optimism in my life today, and I think I carry the things that I always had, which I probably contributed to those feelings as well in the 60s. It is, it's is—it's interesting to live through a time of crisis when many things are going on of which you become a part, driven almost by the wave of, of history. And being an active part of it is important. I chose to write my autobiography in the form of a journal. I did it quite consciously. I've written journals all my life, well, most of my life, and certainly quite intensely since about 1967. It's the form that is a good vehicle for me. It's also a form that, that I developed a taste for and an appreciation for when I read the diaries of Anais Nin and people's letters and journals through the 60s. It was a very fashionable thing in the 60s. That was another level of literature and art that was going on simultaneous. It's something that the French did a lot of and some Americans did. And I like it. It um, suited my purposes. And for a very practical reason, it allowed me to begin, continue, and end in the present which is where I like to tr stay as much as possible. What young singers do you like to listen to today? I listen to music, a great deal of different kinds of music, and I'm particularly intrigued by Paul Simon's most recent album, which I think is 
one of those big albums with a very big idea behind it. I think that, un- unconsciously perhaps, but I think he's done something of great value that's changed changed the ideas in music. If there are any new ideas, which is questionable. Do you get bored? Do you get jaded sometimes with, with music? No, I never get jaded with music. I think sometimes radio tends to play a little too much of the same thing. Not enough contrast, but I come from a time, and I see people like it, too. I see a lot of change in radio. People like contrast. They like to be introduced to new things. Without some wonderful disc jockey in Colorado playing uh, Barbara Allen and the Gypsy Rover, I might never be sitting here talking to you about my chaotic life or whether or not I'm a folk singer. What would you have been if you had not been a singer? Probably a pianist, although I, I would imagine I would have done music, and I probably would have written as well. Music, After mu- I, music still would have been the centerpiece oh, of your yes, life? of some sort, absolutely. That's your destiny? Mm-hmm. Well, you can't be born into something and be ensnared in the harness of it, both as a pleasure and also as a, um, a duty, and not not have something to do with music. I would always have found a way, probably to make make my probably make my living in it in some way, either teaching or in the choir or um, playing the piano, doing something. Is there one question that you are asked by everyone, everywhere you go, that you wish you could answer just one more time and then be done with it? Did Stephen Stills write "Judy Blue Eyes" for you? <laughs> <laughs> and my answer is, I hope so. <laughs> I like to think so. Let's put it that way. Are you happy right now? I am happy. I've had a, I'm in a very good phase of my life. I feel good about things that are going on. I like what's going on in my writing. And I'm working on a new album, planning a new book, and thinking about the fact that I'm happy and healthy, and uh, it's a good thing. More than one person that I've talked to who has heard uh, your new album, Trust Your Heart, says that you've never sounded better, that this is, the, this, is, this is the ultimate Judy Collins. Would you agree? I think that's right. It takes a long time to get all these tools in working order. It takes a lot of stress and strain, and I've described in my book some of the stress and strain that's gone into who I am today. Uh, why write an autobiography? At some times during your life, there comes a point where you want to do some reassessing and some looking backwards and regrouping. I found that that I wished to, to share my story in part to become one of the human race and to, to share some problems that are very human problems. I'm not, after all, a cut-out person. I'm a person with a life that has complications and, and joys. And all of those, I felt, should be shared if the book were to have an authentic voice. And, of course, part of that is that I feel strongly that my work is better than it's ever been in my music. And, and I'm beginning the next 25 years. This is the 25th anniversary on November 
the 27th, my concert at Carnegie Hall in New York will be the anniversary of my very first concert there 25 years ago with Theodore Bickell. Seems only a moment. Judy Collins is 82 now and lives in New York. And you can find easy Amazon links to Judy Collins' books and music at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure to listen to my interview from 1992 with another folk legend, Pete Seeger. I would like to see people singing even when they're not with friends they know. I'd like to see people singing while they're waiting for the bus. <laughs> just us, waiting for the bus, just us, waiting for the bus, just us, waiting for the bus, Mr. Driver, won't you please come soon? And my 2008 conversation with Janice Ian. The article started with, I learned the truth at 18. And I was playing that little ding, 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 And I just went, I learned the truth at 18. Ugh, that didn't work at all. So 17 became it. Of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, he's the guy you associate with the word billions and billions he has an infectious enthusiasm for knowledge and expanding the mind literally to new universes. My 1994 conversation with astronomer Carl Sagan. The long-term future of the human species requires us to be in space, not for impractical reasons, but for the most practical reasons imaginable to safeguard the future of our species. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.